Well, Tom's already reacted, hasn't he, to the reading of Hosea 9. Wow. Um, I've been reading this, obviously, for a little while, and when I came to read it this week, I was aware of who might be in the house. We had our friends coming over from the Unity Pilgrims and Clonard, and we had um, Presbyterians from Coleraine and others from St. Michael the Archangel and West Belfast, and I thought, they do not need to hear me going on about the doom the gloom and the boom of Hosea 9. It wouldn't be a real welcome. But we do this. You've learned a few things about Presbyterianism this morning, those who are visitors with us. Boy, are we long. We're not even doing a mass. And um, there's various things you could learn. I have this on only because it's a baptism and I thought there might be visitors. But um, there's lots of things you learn. And one of the things we do is that we go through... Um, books really an exegetical look at books of the bible and we're at Hosea 9 and as a minister you can't avoid it there's Hosea 9 and when I read it this week I thought that's none too cheery and it reminded me of a wonderful maybe one of the best preachers that Presbyterianism have had for the last um, 50 years in Northern Ireland a man called Alan Flavell and I know that some sat under his ministry in Low Memorial for a time We used to bring Alan Flavel to Queen's University to speak at the Christian Union, and one year we thought, when I was on the executive, that we would be really smart and ask him to do a series on the book of Nahum. Uh, We thought, we'll get into a minor prophet that nobody's read, and we'll give it Dixie. And the third week that he came, he got up and he said, I want to say to your executive that I believe all of the Bible is equally inspired by God but not all is equally inspiring. All is equally inspired by God, but not all is equally inspiring. He got to where I was in this, where basically in Nahum we're coming to this real gloom, doom, and boom, and he'd been doing it the week before, and he was thinking, where do we go from here? Which is where I was at the start of the week. And then I remembered a quotation from a novelist called Hanif Qureshi that I'd read a number of years ago. And he's talking about the modern ills, as Hosea was talking about the ills of 740 BC or so. And he said this in his novel, Midnight uh, All Day. Uh, I think they're in a bar at the time, and there's a couple of guys chatting about life. And he says, we discussed the emptying out, the fear of living, the creation of wasteland, the denigration of value and meaning. I tell him that melancholy was part of my interior scene and that I considered it to be the way the world was until I stood against it. I announce, people make themselves sick when they aren't leading the lives they should be leading. Now, we don't mean by that uh, our little friend in Ballycastle, Lucia, who's in two livers before she was nine years of age, that somehow in the hedonistic, anarchic way that uh, Lucia lived her first seven years, that she had some problem with her liver. We're talking here about society's illnesses, the malaise that goes on, where Janice said to me last night, how many murders has that been since Christmas? Or in Belfast, how many carjackings has that been this week? Or whatever else. People make themselves sick because of the lives that they're leading. And really that's where Hosea's coming to with the people of Israel. This chapter of doom and gloom and boom 
is saying to us, because of the way you've lived, this is all coming crashing down. And it's coming crashing down in the most unfriendly way you can imagine. If we glance through Hosea chapter 9 that was read to us by Winnie, verse 1, there's no rejoicing. Verse 7, days of punishment are coming. Verse 7 again, sins are many. Sunk deep in corruption, wickedness and punishment in verse 9. Woe to them in verse 12. I will reject them in verse 17. Last week we looked at how unless the Lord builds the house, this might happen. Today I want us briefly to look at what we reap is what we sow. Hosea chapter 8 last week, verse 7, they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. Koreshi, people make themselves sick when they aren't leading the lives they should be leading. The people of Israel had put themselves into this malaise because they weren't living the lives of covenant and law and service to neighbor that they had been given to live. Of course, Galatians 6 and 7 is the one that says, do not be deceived, the deceived God cannot be mocked. People reap what they sow. As someone therefore looking at, well, what did we sow in our modern society and what are we reaping in our modern society? How can we find a bridge between 740 BC and 2012? Who would, what, what, I was drawn to my favorite novelist, um, Douglas Copeland, who I haven't read for a number of years, but just at Christmas I read his most recent book, which is called Player One. And it was actually um, a a series of lectures that he had to give in the winning of a a prize, the Massey Lecture, uh, a Canadian uh, lecture of high esteem. And instead of giving a lecture, he decided to write a book in four lecture five, maybe, four or five lengths, one hour each. And he takes you through another story in Douglas Copeland's world where he engages with the illnesses of our society and how we got there. And bear with me, if you could, for a moment or two while I try to do this, try and bridge Hosea, Douglas Copeland. Copeland comes from uh, West Vancouver. Um, He's the same age as my good self, um, he, um, he's been a writer who's been around for a long time, winning all kinds of prizes. And we'll come to a moment why the West Vancouver is important to, to this whole journey of sowing and reaping. But if you read his books, he talks about, um, he has a book called Microsurfs, um, which is about the internet. He has a um, book um, called Generation X, which was about post-modernity and uh, actually meant at that phrase, Generation X. Uh, most of his books deal with those kinds of, those kinds of issues. And he, he said things, things like this. Soon the planet will be entirely populated by people who have only known a world with TV and computers. When this point arrives, will we still continue with pre-TV notions of identity? Probably not. So what he's doing here is he's saying, what are the things that we're sowing into the fabric of our society and our culture now that are going to have an impact down the road? Once we get to that point where everybody forgets the first TV that came into their home, then we've got a whole new generation of people that see things completely different. He says in a different book, J-Pod, In my neighborhood, all the teenage boys are dying because they're driving cars using video game physics instead of real-world physics. They turn too quickly and change lanes too quickly. They don't understand traction or centripetal force. 
not a physician. Uh, and there was Tom just up before me. And they're all dropping like flies. In other words, he's saying that 17-year-old boys in this neighborhood are spending so much time growing up on video games that they think that the road is just like the video games. So there's no traction in the cars. And, you can, and I remember when, uh, when I was about 35, um, I can remember as a, as a kid um, playing a game. They used to call it um, Formula One. Was it Formula One? And I can remember playing it so much in Port Rush that when I was driving home, I was just going across the lines in the road as I would have on the racetrack that I'd just been playing. And I had to go, whoa, this is not the real world. But what happens when we have an entire generation that lived the video game world? How does that affect driving? But how does it affect more than that? The problem is after a week of intense Googling, we've started to burn out on knowing the answer to everything. He's being humorous here, but he says, God must feel that way all the time. I think people in the year 2020 are going to be nostalgic for the sensation of feeling clueless. Because nowadays, you can know everything on Google, on your phone. How do pub quizzes work anymore? I feel to understand. Even when they're doing that round of the music, you can have an app that as soon as the music plays in the bar, it tells you what the song is, where you can buy it, and how much. What will it affect our society when that's been what we've been sowing into our society? Here's this conclusion in player one that just came out about a year ago. Look at you all, the modern society. Probably not us, but we're here somewhere. You're a depressing grab bag of pop culture influences and cancelled emotions, driven by the sputtering engine of the most banal form of capitalism. No seasons in your lives. Merely industrial production cycles that rule you better than any tyrant. You keep waiting for the moral of your life to become obvious, but it never does. Work, work, work. No moral, no plot, no eureka. Just production schedules and days. You might as well be living inside a photocopier. Your lives are all they're ever going to be. The sowing into our society and our culture. What can we possibly hope to reap in such a world? But Copeland's sowing goes deeper. Copeland's sowing goes to the very heart of belief in God. Copeland suggests in his life that he was brought up in West Vancouver, which is apparently the greatest size of real estate in the Western world with the least number of churches per head of population. You have the least number of churches in West Vancouver of anywhere else in the world. And his parents brought him up, he declares, not to be atheist, not to be agnostic, because he says he didn't even get that opportunity. They brought him up without the question of God at all. It was never in the language. I was raised in a totally secular environment, You're presuming that I'm some lapsed Christian. I'm not. I'm working from zero. You look for some of your brainwork, foundation, or underpinning to make sense of your life, which is usually not too positive. You have to construct some sort of rational system of making sense of everything. He really um, is quite angry with his parents that he never got the opportunity to wrestle with the God thing or the spiritual thing and says that his writing has been him trying to work out a structure for how to live life if God is not present at all. And in life after God, he says, 
Is feeling nothing the inevitable result of believing in nothing? I thought it would be such a sick joke to have to remain alive for decades and not believe in or feel anything. A society that doesn't only sue atheism, but tries to make sure that Christianity is not sown, was the idyllic world that the Copeland family hoped for. And it didn't work. It didn't work. Copeland's conclusion, after all, in the novel Life After God, my secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me to give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind because I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me to love as I seem beyond being able to love. What are we sowing into our society? In Hosea's day, there was materialism there for sure. There were dubious alliances politically with other nations. There was this diluting of the covenant of God. But what is it that we're sowing? What is it that comes into my life? I was, and I mean this in the most minuscule kind of way. I was driving down the street this week and I had a yawn at about two in the afternoon and I knew I didn't need a yawn at two in the afternoon because of the day that was on ahead of me. And I thought, that criminal minds at 12 o'clock last night, was that really a necessary sowing into your life, Steve? And then I started to think, what am I sowing into my life? What am I sowing into my children's lives? What will we sow into Sam's life? What we sow, we will reap. The values that we hold, we will reap. If we think we can do without God, we'll reap that. In a world that wants to do without God, but still wants holiness in all the living around about it. If we want to sow beauty, we'll reap breast implants that seem to have gone faulty. If we, re- if we sow alcohol offers the first week of term at Queen's University, we're going to reap the Holy Lands and St. Patrick's Day. If we sow a sectarian society, we're going to reap the possibility of going back to the days of the past. So what do we sow, rather? We need to find in the church how we sow those particles of light around the city. Different values different reasons for living, different reasons for work. I know what people are saying. I do know what they're saying, so forgive me. But when people say, oh, it's Friday, I don't have to go to work tomorrow. I wonder what message that is that that we throw to what work is, what our vocation is. Who are people in work that we live with or work with are? What does it, as those who want to sow a different kind of worldview, then this Christian worldview where vocation's important, where everything's needing, needing redeemed is important, where almost every aspect in our lives is missional, is important. Where grace and how we treat each other is more important than winning. Where the Beatitudes become 
the character of people and the outworking of people, the reaping will be different. It will change our responses. It will change other people's responses. And what about inside the church? What are we sowing for those who've gone outside? Sometimes I worry that already we've told them this is boring. You need to get out and do something different because you see that church thing, it's really boring. You don't want to be in there until you're 16 or 18 or whatever else. Are we sowing that? Somebody did a study recently and they said, what we need to make sure in our churches is that when people drift away from church and they want to come back from church, that they have a prodigal church that they know they can go back with whatever their doubts are, whatever way they've messed up is, that they can come back to this place and they will know that they will be welcomed no matter what because that's the essence of grace at the heart of our community. But before they will believe that when they're 27 or 37 or 47, we're going to have to sow that into their lives. You are loved as you are. You are valued. You're an important member of this community. You are family. The way we sow things. And it's difficult, isn't it, to live these balanced things? Because I said at the outset of the service, we're not wanting to go back to a kind of a, um, a Mennonite-type life where we, we live some colonial uh, world out there, somewhere on the north coast away from electricity and gas supplies and uh, certainly not central heating. Um, uh, we, we, want, we don't want to say we're not going to Google. We don't want to say we're not going to watch television. We don't even want to say to your children, you can't play that game. But it's the balance, isn't it? The balance that we're going to have to find. And this is where God's Word brings in balance. We need to sieve things through the Word of God. We need to sieve things through the way God expects us to live our lives. Because we're always just in that place between freedom leading to anarchy or advice leading to legalism and we need to find this place this place where grace God's ways the upside down kingdom the example of Jesus who was first but became last so that those who were last could become first all these upside down things need to be sown into our lives so that they'd be sown into the church's life so they'd be sown into the very fabric of a society that's in desperate trouble like Hosea chapter 9. How many carjackings will it take? How many murders does it take? How many bankers whose, whose money or whose stock has gone down 45%, but whose bonus has been three times what it was like. How much of that do we take? How long will it be before we rush back and ask God, what is the covenant that Sam's been brought into? What are the stuff that we need to sow into the lives of Sam and everyone at his stage? What is the laws that we need to look at again? What are the values, the ways, the reasons for living? What do we sow? Because at the minute we're reaping what we did sow. And in another 30 years, what we decide to sow tomorrow will have its effect 
Lent, the Bible, prayer, and service. Could it bring us back to some of those values that we need to start sowing before the doom, the gloom, and the boom is upon us? Let's pray. Lord, we pray you would help us to critique our own lives. There are many things that are sewn into the fabric of our lives that we're even unaware of. Help us to critique, Lord. Send your spirit to critique. There are many things that are sewn into our own lives that we've deliberately brought in. Send your spirit to convict, Lord, to help us to correct. And there are many things that we're not sowing in our lives that we should be. Send your spirit, Lord, to crash in the wondrous advice of your law, the wondrous relationship of your covenant, the wondrous example of Jesus living the kingdom upside down that we need to begin to live for the good of our own lives, for the good of this church community and other church communities, and for the good of our society. May we be those who sew into the fabric of our society those things of light that will break through the darkness that threatens to engulf us with the redemption of the kingdom of God. We give ourselves to that. Give us wisdom and courage to live it. In Christ's name, amen.